Our first reading comes from 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. At that place, Elijah came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Mel-Allah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. This morning, we have a theme that has curiously gone unspoken, or at least the word I would use has not yet been said explicitly. 
Now, I've preached and written about this theme several times over the years, so perhaps, and maybe even hopefully, you already know where I'm going with this. It's the kind of concept or theme that's important enough to repeat, at least whenever the text lends itself to it. How important? Well, I had a professor in seminary claim that we cannot, at least not fully, understand the Gospels without first understanding this concept as it is found in the Old Testament. It's pretty important. That theme for today, this concept of old, chaos. In his book, Creation and the Persistence of Evil, Jewish scholar John Levinson goes throughout the Old Testament and shows how this unspoken theme, again, in the sense that it's not explicit, right? we don't read, this reading is about chaos. And yet the theme comes up again and again throughout. You can tell from the name of that book that the implication is evil rises out of chaos and is sustained by chaos. Lack of order, unpredictability, those realities in our world open wide the possibility that genuinely bad things are going to happen. So chaos is a theme throughout, and like I said, Levinson gives a number of examples, and we're just going to touch on a couple. For example, we could go right back to the beginning. This is one, the first account of creation. There God's spirit flies over the sea, or Tamar which is notable because that's a rare use of a peculiar, particular Hebrew word, which is uncannily and uncoincidentally very similar to the Babylonian god's name, Tiamat, the sea personified. And so that's hinted at here in Genesis 1. The sea is both personified and representative of chaos. Chaos that God is above, but does not destroy. Instead, God puts order to it. If you go back and reread those six days of creation, you'll notice it is mostly about order. God sets boundaries, a place for everything and everything in its place. Of course, we know those boundaries are not always expected. So, for example, sticking with this idea of the sea being chaotic, though God separates the land from the sea, flooding happens. Tidal waves, tsunamis happen. Levinson goes on to cite examples in Isaiah, Psalms, Job, all of which mention a great sea beast who also represents chaos in much the same way. They suggest that God keeps chaos around for sport, but there will come a time when chaos is put to death. By the way, stepping outside the Bible just for a moment, it was also a fairly common superstition among ancient people, both in this area and elsewhere, that bodies of water, lakes, seas, were gateways or held the gateways to the underworld. They believed a realm, a literal world under this one, filled with you know, typically demons, evil spirits, dead people. They believed that realm was there under our feet, and the way in and out of it might be under the water somewhere if you could survive down there. While lots of things can be identified as chaotic and dangerous, uh, causing death, the sea stands out as a pretty common example, especially throughout Scripture, for good reason. 
for one example, it's not until very recently in human history that if a ship goes out to sea and disappears, up until recently, no one would ever have known why, most likely. But there's other kinds of chaos. Earthquakes, fires, and storms come to mind for some reason. There's also the sort of chaos people can bring about. It's not just nature. People do chaotic things too. And that's all on Elijah's mind as he flees to commune with God. Ahab, king of Israel, along with his wife Jezebel, have instituted pagan worship of Baal and Asherah. To make that happen, they've been killing the prophets of Yahweh, trying to get rid of any religious authority or powerful speaker that would you know, say no. So Elijah's compatriots are dead, and his life is very much in danger. He must be wondering, where could God possibly be in the midst of that kind of devastation, and what could God be calling him to do? So he heads out to a mountaintop where prophets and patriarchs alike go to get closer to God. Now, it may or may not be a coincidence that the top of a mountain is the geographic conceptual opposite of the bottom of the chaotic sea. Right? The underworld chaos, death is there, God is here. So when Elijah's up there, the chaos finds a way to follow him. It doesn't subside, at least not at first. Keep in mind that even though we humans know an awful lot about some of these things nowadays, at least from a, from a scientific standpoint, we could look at a fire and identify cause, effect, and outcome, and it could be rather formulaic and predictable. However, from an ancient perspective, and frankly, from our own intuition, right, our intuitive perspective on these things, we say things more like, that fire has a mind of its own. Earthquakes come and go for no reason. And we could say the same of storms, even if we know one is coming, we don't know where it's going. These big, destructive, dangerous, deadly disasters spring up one after another, right there in front of Elijah. And Elijah, since he's been told God's going to be passing by, he looks into the chaos of these things, and yet he fails to find God in any of them. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, right? Quakes, fires, storms, as far as the sort of chaos that could touch Elijah's life up there on the mountain. But conceptually, we've checked out, checked off just about all of them, right? I mean, this is the epitome of disaster reaching up out of the sea all the way to the top of a mountain. What else could happen up there that's chaotic unless those people catch up with him? Things cannot get any worse for Elijah. It's hard to imagine what else could happen up there anyway. But then in the calm that follows, Elijah experiences or hears sheer silence. Older translations said he heard a still, small voice, a kind of words you can only hear if everyone and everything else is quiet. Even the rustling of the leaves would cover it up. So he gets the call from God and sees God's spirit flying away in the distance. He doesn't see God face to face like he was probably hoping, like he's kind of behaving, right? covering his face like maybe Moses would have. But he gets what he came for. He knows what he is to do next. 
So next for us, well, let's fast forward a couple hundred years, and we'll pick up with Jesus just about where we left him last week. He's withdrawn from the crowds after hearing about John the Baptist's death. Crowds followed, though, so he fed them. Then today, he finally gets to be off by himself. And what do you know? He goes to a mountaintop to pray. And he comes back to the boat in the midst of, what, strong winds, unsteady waters, and yet he walks across the sea itself. Now remember up top, I relayed this strong suggestion about you cannot understand what's happening in the Gospels without a handle on this Old Testament theme. Well, this is a good example of that because it is impressive to walk on water. That'd be an impressive sort of superpower to witness. But for Jesus, really, it's not that big of a standout on his long list of signs and miracles. Right? He's done plenty of other things that are just as, if not more, impressive, and there's still more to come. But this story is not just a literal account of something that took place in history. It's a metaphor which was lived out in history. It is a theological statement about who Jesus is and his place in the world. Not just a statement said with words, but a statement lived out before their eyes. Like God's spirit on the first day of creation, flying above the waters, Jesus stands above the waters. He's cool, calm, and collected because he knows that the chaos and death that the sea often represents, that the sea presents to those men, simply has no power over him. And Peter, when called out and confident, seems for a moment to be able to do the same. With his eyes on Jesus, Trust in God's ability and willingness to save him from chaos and death. He steps out of the boat, stands on the water. But the wind hasn't stopped. The waves are still rolling. Doubt creeps in at the sight of it, and he's reminded of what typically happens to men who go overboard. And he becomes like one of them as he starts to sink. Another metaphor lived out in the real world. Trust in Christ, seeking after, clinging to, responding to the call, and Peter joins Christ above the waves of chaos and death. Now, we could take these stories and apply them in our lives in some way. It might be a little bit more indirect than we're used to. So, like Elijah, we might think to run to God when faced with the most difficult of chaotic sorts of circumstances. Like Elijah, we may not find God until the dust settles and we're comfortable sitting alone in silence. We could say that Jesus calls us out of the boat sometimes, but the thing is, Peter asked him to do that, so maybe we wouldn't. These stories are less about us. They're not really about who we are, what we are to do. They are much more so about who God is, making the statement that God is bigger, more powerful, more consistent than any storm, fire, quake, or rough sea, that God is above all the chaos, the danger, the death. Through Christ, God calls us above it all too. 
A doubt will still creep in. The seas still roar for now, but death does not have the final say. Chaos will be put away in due time. What Christ has done and revealed is that we will be there with God, with one another, on the other side when that time comes. The scene played out. A literal event with a metaphorical meaning that Christ was above the chaos and death and calls us up above them 